Starting up a business is hard, really, really hard. Your chances of failure are high. You're likely to lose both your sleep and your hair. But luckily for you, you're not alone. Welcome to ET Startup School, your step-by-step -step guide to starting, building and consolidating your startup business idea. Your teachers at the ET Startup School will be some of India's best-known entrepreneurs, VCs and domain experts. So grab a notebook, pay close attention, school is about to start. Today's class at ET Startup School is called What is Product Market Fit? Your teacher for this class is Shilpa Sharma. Shilpa spent 12 years at Fab India before co-founding Jaipur, India's first online retail portal for exquisitely designed handmade Indian craft products. In 2019, Aditya Birla Fashion and Retail acquired Jaipur for 110 crore rupees. Shilpa currently works as a consultant, mentor and advisor to startups and their founders. So Shilpa Sharma, what was the core of your idea for Jaipur? At Jaipur, we wanted to create a brand that embodies everything I love about the beauty of India, from classic to traditional to contemporary. I mean, we're a proud country and we should be proud of our heritage. What I really, really wanted to do with Jaipur was to elevate our country of origin status and mitigate India's reputation for cheap, grungy, low-quality craft by offering top-notch quality and aesthetic. This sounds like a broad philosophical intent. How did that translate into anything actual, like clothes or furniture or products or light fittings? Yeah, so so look, I mean, you know, um, when it comes to clothing, there's traditional Indian craft, which translates into craft-based clothing. It's clothes as we've always known them through brands like Fab India. The whole outlook to apparel was to make, to give it a very, very contemporary silhouette. So traditional textiles translated into contemporary outcomes. When it came to clothes, it was in, in the form of silhouettes and forms and shapes um, and really style. You know, styling was a big one. When it came to, let's say, traditional craft forms like a bidri or a chenapatna, right? Bidri now traditionally and originally sat on um, very, very exquisite vases and wall plates. But the minute bidri started to become a design uh, detail into desktop accessories or even, you know, bar accessories, it became contemporary product, which was relevant, which was functional and also very smart. It could sit in any home, anywhere in the world. That's really the essence of, you know, the shift that we wanted to bring out. How do you contemporize tradition in a way that it is relevant to anybody in any home, anywhere in the world. And I'm fairly certain you would have studied the market before you launched your brand. So was is Fab India the big daddy in the market? Is Anoki a serious player? Is Nicobar a significant player? How did you see your idea visibly what was already available? Apparel drives shopping and consumption. You know, that's fairly evident in our country. And Indian customers in apparel, for example, are sitting at two extremes, right? On the one side is the what I call the moneyed minority, which is being seduced by international brands and luxury Indian brands. Um, and on the other side is the overwhelming majority, which is almost about 90% of the market, who buys into mass marketed product, who's constantly seeking value and deals. And uh, for product, which is basically, let's say, aspiration at the intersection of affordability and so on, right? There's nothing much in between. So to us, to me, there was a very, very clear lifestyle gap. And that is also what the opportunity was, you know, from where a Fab India ends at the bottom of the pile to where, let's say, a Good Earth um, began at the other end of the spectrum. There was a big gap. And, you know, 
I felt that there was an opportunity to really plug this gap across categories. That's a useful sort of shorthand. Fab India here, Good Earth here, and there's a gap in between. Yeah. Shilpa, yeah, what yeah. do entrepreneurs need to know about spotting a gap? In your case, there were physical stores, there were physical products. Maybe slightly easier to actually visually observe uh, products, prices, gaps. What do entrepreneurs need to know about observing gaps or spotting gaps, sometimes which are not self-evident? Yeah, well, you know, I think um, to begin with, an entrepreneur needs to know that he or she is catering to an evinced need. Trying to create a need for a product um, is significantly tougher than catering to an existing need. You don't want to solve a problem that doesn't exist, right? So uh, I think that's the beginning. And then to be able to know that you have a value prop which is going to hold its own and which is not going to be seen as an also ran. Because the trouble with also rands is that you run the risk of getting into battles which are led through cost leadership. And there'll always be somebody out there who's been around longer than you have, who's had, let's say, what we call the first mover advantage, who's, who can shout louder than you can because, you know, they've got the marketing muscle that you don't. And you can spend lots of money, you know, which you can't. So really, um, I think for an entrepreneur to find a value prop which holds its own and which is not seen as something that the market has seen enough and more of. I mean, disruption, you know, as we call it today. What is disruption? Disruption is really creating an opportunity out of something that you can see, but which is not particularly evident to, uh, you know, everyone out there. Uh, when I speak to first-time entrepreneurs, some of them say, I ask them, so uh, what's your product? What's your idea? And who's your competition? And many of them say, we have absolutely no competition. We are unique in this market. right? And I keep telling them, no, actually, you are competing for somebody's share of wallet, share of mind, share of attention. You're competing all the time. So when you created Jaipur, in your view, were you creating a brand new genre of products and services? Or were you entering a fairly established market and you were finding a sort of spot somewhere in the established market? You know, I don't think we were creating a new genre, but we were disrupting an established market. And in disrupting an established market, what we really, really meant was that, you know, we were introducing a design language, an aesthetic that was combining something that has always remained, that is already available. India's cultural references in terms of craft, in terms of textile, and we were just infusing an element of modernity into it just to be able to make it far more stylish. I mean, what we were trying to do really is to create um, India's national aesthetic. There's a very nice saying that, you know, sums up what we were trying to do here, right? Creativity is a lot like looking at the world through a kaleidoscope. You look at a set of elements, the same ones that everyone else sees, but then you reassemble those, um, you know, floating bits and pieces of those into an enticing new possibility, and you have a whole new product. Now, these are the words of, uh, you know, Rosabeth Moskanter, who's a senior professor at Harvard, and who I have a huge you know, amount of respect in. You use the words India's national aesthetic. That's a pretty ambitious sort of mission statement to have. Did you have uh, trouble selling this idea to people, to employees, to uh, customers? You know, we weren't using fancy words to sell the idea to people. We were just demonstrating to them. And I, and I remember that when I went out to start to onboard people, um, to um, bring them on board with Jaipur, which was going to be an online first, an online and only an online proposition at that point in time, I think the story I went to them with was, here's an opportunity to showcase the finest work that you've got without having to worry about how many of these pieces can you make 
and what you need to sell it at to be able to get people to uh, appreciate its worth i wasn't using fancy words like i want to be you know india modern i want to be you know india's national aesthetic i just felt that we wanted to be able to showcase the finest and the most beautiful indian product online and that was a language people you know understood very simple is it important for an entrepreneur to have that kind of mission statement because i find it quite inspiring to hear you say india's national aesthetic that seems like a a mission statement a statement of intent a philosophical sort of stake in the ground is it important for entrepreneurs to be rooted to something like that you know um, i don't want to give it uh, the terminology of a mission statement or a vision statement because these are things that we did in the corporate world and spent you know lots of money building right i mean you've been in that space long enough to know that that's how it works so i think for us it had to be a very very simple proposition which drove the point home without us having to go into um you know any detail at all and to say india's most beautiful product online really was the simplest uh way to uh you know put out the idea and the concept and it worked it worked really well because it was category agnostic we weren't talking about just clothes we weren't saying india's most beautiful clothes we were saying india's most beautiful product and then the name you know i mean jaipur uh, stood for uh you know india's most beautiful as much because jaipur as a city is a representation of india's finest when it comes to culture when it comes to heritage when it comes to color and uh, design so i think it all kind of you know came together in a way that uh it didn't take very much for people at all to figure what it was going to be quite often i hear venture capitalists saying that if you want us to fund your idea it should be a billion dollar idea or a billion dollar potential billion dollar idea right how does an entrepreneur who's starting out know what his or her total addressable market or tam is or market sizes how did you figure it out you know so i'm a very um, follow your gut and um, you know chase a dream kind of a person and i have to say that in my um, 30 years of being in the active workspace i have never really looked to use a uh, market size estimates as a crutch i know my friends in consulting and in the large corporates would hate me for saying this but the truth is that um uh, you know measuring the size of the market i mean there's enough and more numbers floating around which talked about way back then i think there were some numbers which which were of the order of 35000 crores worth of um you know the ethnic market in india i'm like you know what does it even say it just tells me the opportunity is large enough so i think you know i am kind of not the best person to answer that question but if i must i have to say that your belief in what you're trying to build and your understanding of the market and the value proposition um if it's deep enough then you know you create a market i mean this is not like i said creating a need that doesn't exist and is it possible that if i came up with an idea the idea itself might create a market of its own uber for instance perhaps created a market all of its own Uber was addressing a crying need. I don't think Uber was born out of nothing at all, right? I mean, it was addressing a market. It was, you know, creating convenience, technology enabled convenience and access, and uh, you know, the need, um, you know, for people to get from point A to point B across different, uh, you know, levels of service. I think there's enough and more out there that um, you know is is waiting to be addressed. So. um i do not think and i can't think of a good example of a product category or a product offering which is really trying to cater to a need that doesn't exist look i mean you can't change every analog habit 
right? I mean, people who are used to buying from the neighborhood Kirana will still buy from the neighborhood, neighborhood Kirana because he will deliver just six eggs, you know, and you live in Bombay and Bombay is a great example of that service available to you or just a, you know, phone call. So, but the truth is that there, you know, the, the pace at which the world is moving, the way we're using technology to our advantage, there's enough and more opportunity to create um, services and products which are catering to an evinced need. I mean, I just feel that if you don't think there is a need for a product, then you're really not farming, then you're just hunting. Okay, that's a good lesson for entrepreneurs. It's yeah. farming, not yeah. hunting. If you're in a hunting yeah, business, absolutely. you're in trouble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody like has the patience for all the money, all the money to hunt. You know, it's really farming. All right, I know you've answered this in bits and pieces in the previous questions. Right. But if you were to identify your three or four key differentiators of the Jaipur brand, what would they be? I think our approach to curation and the single-minded focus on delivering a 360-degree experience. You see, I come from a Fabinder kind of an environment where um, Fabinder had a national footprint of stores, but the economics of retail were really, really challenging. I mean, every store that you need to set up cost anywhere from one and a half crores to five crores, depending on the size and scale of operation that you wanted. In being online, our whole idea was that there are no geographical boundaries, right? I mean, we had the opportunity to shop from what we call endless aisles. Now, endless aisles, even Mintra was doing at that point in time. I think what our big differentiator was that we had a certain approach to curation and we were so anal about the experience that we wanted to deliver, right? In terms of quality of product, quality of design, exclusivity of product. I mean, these were the drivers that really drove the choices that we made and the choices that the customer made. All right. So you came up with your differentiators. Now, how did you communicate these differentiators to the market? I mean, advertising is expensive. Online advertising is expensive. Search engine optimization is expensive. Every way of communicating uh, D2C brands or their values to customers is an expensive proposition. How did you do it? You know, once we decided who we wanted to be and what our approach to curation um, and uh, delivery of the experience was going to be, I think we set out to build a level of trust with our uh, audiences. People came to us not because we were spending pots of money on generating traffic, but for love of what we stood for and the quality of our offering on a daily basis. Um, the biggest uh, example of that is that our communication, whether it was the tone and tenor of our newsletters or the quality of our posts on social media, were never only about product. Actually, one out of every five pieces of communication that went out were about the product we were selling. The remaining four were really trying to engage with the audience, with the women, um, you know, at a level where they love to have conversations. It could be about nostalgia, it could be about music, it could be about relationships. I mean, there was a whole uh, plethora of conversations that we had with, uh, you know, our audience. And that's what just drew them to us. I mean, product became a, by the way, outcome of the conversation that we were having. It was almost that, you know, product is intrinsic, right? Ye to, you know, they're bound to find something great on the website. But the, what they're really, really beginning to enjoy a lot is, uh, you know, the conversation that they're having. And uh, I must share something. Just the other day, I got asked, um, you know, what my definition of a brand is. And I said to me, a brand is an experience that stays with you long after you've come and shopped the brand. You clearly uh, stated that women were your, was your, was, were your target customers for Jaipur. 
within that, how precise of a definition should an entrepreneur have? Is it okay to have a broad definition saying all urban women or all women, or should you be ultra specific in defining a customer? You know, the thing is that um, I, and I have to say women, not because we had a thing about, you know, not catering to men, but the truth is that when you have limited resources and you can only talk to one audience, you want to spend your money to get, you know, where you can get bang for buck. And we couldn't split our marketing budgets to cater to men and women adequately. And in talking to the women, we felt that, you know, a lot of men were just coming, you know, tagging along. So that kind of worked for us. To answer your question about uh, how important it is to have a good understanding of your customer, I think it's very important. You know, because the truth is that um, to be able to differentiate between one who will peg a value to what it is that you're offering versus another who's constantly looking for value. In my head, that means that constantly looking for deals, right? Unless who, who, unless you know who you're talking to and who you can sell to, um, you're just, you know, spending all your money, uh, you know, bucking up the wrong tree. So Shilpa, you worked in Fab India before you founded Jaipur. Sometimes we hear of founders who worked in a similar business as a job. They worked in a similar genre, a similar business, and then went on to found a startup. And sometimes we hear of founders who had nothing to do with it. They worked in big consulting and now they're in uh, women's skincare products, right? There's no relation. We've heard of product market fit and that's what we're talking about today. How important is market and founder fit? I think it's very important. For someone who comes with experience of being customer facing, for someone who has catered to a certain customer type, who's been able to identify a value proposition, which has, you know, its own two feet to stand on. I think they can hit the ground running. Um, this is not to undermine all those founders who have no background in the business that they're choosing to build. I mean, I'm sure they're surrounding themselves by people with that experience. Because the truth is that, um, you know, when the market founder fit is what it needs to be, you're not spending your time second guessing or, um, you know, spending tons of money, um, you know, on dipsticks and validating of uh, hypothesis. You can actually spend your time challenging your own preconceptions. You can do things without the approval of the industry, things that people might disapprove of. But, you know, um, you're not hardwired to seek the approval of others because you're doing what you're doing out of your deepest um, beliefs and convictions, which have come from running customer-facing businesses. At that uh, one level, it's very, very important. And the other, uh, and I also want to um, share that uh, supply chain credibility is extremely important. Um, you know, when you're bootstrapping, right? People know what you're capable of. People know what you've demonstrated adequately and then are willing to take a bet on you. Now, the next question is pretty obvious, uh, but answer it anyway. How did Jaipur make money? Actually, we did make money. You know, the truth is we built a very loyal customer base. Okay, like I must put you in a caveat. Money. You may not have made reproaching profits, but you made money, surely. Yeah, so, so yeah, let, 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 me, let me just say, uh, you know, Jaipur built a very loyal customer base. And that customer base delivered metrics that were unheard of in the industry, right? In terms of, uh, let's say, average well value, in terms of repeat buying rate, in terms of, you know, next to negligible uh, returns. But the truth is, and and we believe that you know, um, for anything worthwhile to build, it would take time. We needed to grow the base from where it was to where it could be, for us to be able to start to make big bucks. So yes, I mean at a gross margin level, we were making big bucks. But the truth is that at that point in time, in the early stage of the business, uh, you know, we were spending all our money on customer acquisition. 
because we needed to grow the base. It is a classical 0 to 1 versus 1 to n journey, right? So from a conversion rate of, you know, what at that point in time used to be 1%, if we could go up to 3, it would move our needle. If we went up to 5, it would be a game changer. And for us to be able to do that, we needed to go omni-channel. We needed to do retail stores to be able to draw the 99% who are not shopping online. So, I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I have to say here at this point in time that I stepped down from the business five years ago. And anything that I might say at this point in time is all about my story, my vision and my journey. And most importantly, uh, it is not at all representative of where the business might be today or the direction is taking now. Fair enough. That disclaimer is well yeah. received. So did you have any other business models other than selling to customers? Did you sell to institutions? Were there other sort of revenue streams that you had visualized? You know, uh, revenue streams are an opportunity that emerge as you focus on what you're very good at, which is really being B2C. Uh, B2B opportunities at that point in time, and look, you know, when we set up Jaipur in 2012, uh, the space and the environment was very different from what it is today. The B2B opportunity at that point in time was there very much, but for us, it was impossible to be able to um, uh, chase it because the economics um, and the commercials of um, the opportunity would not work for someone in our space. But I think a lot of our makers, a lot of our stakeholders, whether they were artisans or designers, got the benefit of visibility on Jaipur in terms of, you know, being uh, able to open up export opportunities for themselves, other B2B opportunities for themselves, which we were very, very happy about. Let's talk about another important aspect of product market fit, and that is pricing. What was your pricing strategy at Jaipur? You know, the thing is that we were not price driven in our approach. When we said India's most beautiful product online, it was evident that we were bringing authenticity, exclusivity, and um, and uh, quality and aesthetic which was globally relevant at that point in time the perceived value of the product was going to drive what we could sell it at that said um, again you know i may sound like a bit like a broken record but the truth is that having been customer facing at a fab india for 12 years uh, one knew how much one could push the envelope you know you go to a, go up to a certain point where you know the price value equation is still very, very manageable. Beyond a certain point, it becomes untenable. And look, I mean, the truth is that our customers are not foolish. We're catering to a very, very discerning, you know, well-read, well-heeled, but knowing customer. People who can't be bullshitted. And, I, and how did you and test I, the market? Did you test the market I at all? Would, yeah, I would, uh, I'll come to that question in just a minute. I would put my hand on my heart and say that maybe one out of a hundred times, people came back and said, oh, but I've seen this product cheaper somewhere else, right? But otherwise, it just seemed bang on. Your question about testing the market, uh, no, I didn't test the market at all. Because the truth is that, you know, we um, we were doing what we were doing, basis a very good understanding of the audience that we were catering to. The price of testing the market, right? What is the risk that you, that you really uh, run of a failed category representation or a failed collection? It's not significant. It's not like years of research that have gone into building a technology or an investment in expensive machinery when you're launching a new, um, you know, pack size or a new, uh, uh, new chocolate in the market, right? For us, you know, the approach, were the, the attitude was always there is opportunity in having nothing to lose. All you need is the right attitude. 
So we did a lot of experimentation in terms of categories that we flirted with. We tried to sell precious jewelry online. We tried to sell furniture online. Some things worked for us, some things didn't. Some things ended up being deemed as limited edition, once in a, uh, you know, once in a while kind of a, a, a collection. And other things just took precedence over on else. I mean, silver jewelry was a category that surprised us. How much silver jewelry we sold um, on a day-to-day -day basis was just, you know, uh, I mean, no research could have backed the hypothesis that went behind, you know, what made jewelry work for us. What's the lesson here? I mean, I think <laughs> many lessons in here really is that, you know, one lesson, of course, is that for anything worthwhile to build, uh, you know, it's going to take time. Secondly, you know, don't just build something because you're passionate about it, because I think passion can be overrated. You're passionate about one thing today, something else tomorrow. Unless you get really, really good at it, you know, it's never going to last. And really, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I'm very, very driven by a swim against the tide. I want to be able to challenge my own perceptions, I want to be able to push boundaries and I want to be able to, um, you know, disrupt the market in a way that whatever it is that I'm doing is never an also ran. So I think um, entrepreneurs just have to, have to, you know, take stock of. Okay, here we are with Jaipur. You've got your product and service idea ready. You've got your customer experience defined. You've got your target audience defined. You've got your sales strategy defined. Right? What was the moment of truth? Did it occur to you on one day that enough people may be willing to pay you enough money for you to run and scale a business? Is there like a flash of light that you saw and said, yes, everything is going to work? You know, so the thing is that once you, once you blaze a trail, there's no looking back. Our biggest moment of truth at Jaipur was that uh, despite the fact that we had that large of following and, you know, we were, we were being talked about just about everywhere, I was coming upon conversations at cafes, I was stumbling, stumbling on conversations in security queues at the airport. The truth is that only 1% of um, all the people tramping the website uh, were actually shopping, were actually transacting. Now, the, the big truth for us was that if we had to gently nudge or enable the 99% of the others who were aware of the brand, who knew what we were about, but who were just not shopping online, if we had to get them to consider us, we had to reach out and set up stores to give them a tactile experience of what it is that the brand stands for in the online space and then gently nudge them into moving to shop online. I think that became our biggest moment of truth, right? Where the audience that we're catering to was consuming a lot of um, social media, but is not necessarily shopping online. And we're not catering to the audience that's spending all its time and money shopping online. So so really the the realization that you know we needed to have an omni-channel approach and therefore would need to invest in stores to be able to back up the technology that we had uh, that had created uh, you know the brand uh, was really uh, you know a realization that came and then that would need you know investment uh, to a whole new level. And Shilpa uh, were you a solo founder in Jaipur? No I wasn't. Puneet Chavla who's a software product manager who I'd been introduced to, who when I'd met him had said to me that, you know, I think the future of this country is online. I just don't know what to sell. So, yeah, I mean, Puneet and PC, as I called him, really drove the technology and the operations at the back end. Um, and yeah, and marketing, well, marketing is a big one for us. Did you do what's called a pre-mortem, which is dissect all the ways in which your business could fail, things could go wrong, nobody buys the tech fails, the product fails. Did you do that kind of thing and then create a plan B? 
you know the thing is that we were constantly in that mode i'm not sure i like the word premortem but but you know proactively thinking on your feet about what is it that can be the motor on the business for example you know what's it going to take to build a motor on the business see jaipur was not just a curated marketplace it was a brand it was always meant to be a brand it had to stand for something that it could call its own and um our ability to make money our ability to generate profits and then be as authentic and exclusive in the offline space as much needed for us to have our own um aesthetic which we, which we could a call our own and own and b also you know are used to drive uh, uh, profitability so just being a curated marketplace was just not enough so i think the plan b was very clearly i mean a to make plan a work which is always the case you know you have an option you will always run for the option but the truth is that for me in whatever it is that i do plan b is always to make plan a work but um, that said it was important for us to create a motor on the business which would make us not infallible but which would strengthen um the brand that we were trying to build and you know should put us on a road to prop- on a path to profitability which is what every vc wants you you've also seen a lot of other d2c businesses other than jaipur in your time what are some of the key mistakes that entrepreneurs tend to make uh, while building d2c businesses i can imagine not factoring in the number of returns the cost of customer service all of that could be mistakes that you could make because you could think your product will sell and everybody will love you i mean you know i think a lot of mistakes that people make is in not fine tuning their product proposition to start with you know the value prop what is it that you're really selling um we have to have the staying power we have to be able to know which way we can grow the brand i mean you know we do not create a brand that becomes a force to reckon with on the strength of one single product i think to have visibility of what it is that you can create horizontally vertically in every which direction is very very important that kind of foresight is important because then you know what it is that you're trying to build you know what it is that you're going to have to look for to enable you along your journey none of this comes cheap right i mean we have to we have to be able to raise the big bucks to support us we have to be able to fuel the dream that we you know the the dreams that we see i think the biggest mistake one of the biggest one of the many mistakes that entrepreneurs tend to make is really to try and short circuit their customers underestimate the customers understanding of who they are and what they're trying to build and you know i mean i firmly believe that we should give customers credit for believing in us and um, you know walking alongside with us I any mean, mistakes that uh, you made that yeah. you want to fess up to during the building of uh, jaipur yeah most certainly i mean you know look uh, life is all about learning lessons um, you know for the next time and i think one of my biggest learnings uh, and takeaways um, you know at jaipur has really been my inability to see um, that what it was going to take the business to get from 1 to n in terms of growth was not what the 0 to 1 journey had been and i for one am a very very focused 0 to 1 journey person and not necessarily one who can take it from 1 to 200 and i think as responsible and mature founders of a business uh we have to come to terms with the fact that you know there comes a stage in the business where you allow for someone else to come in from the outside and forge ahead to take the business from where it's at to where it can get to it's a different skill set it's a different mindset 
and a completely different uh, you know capability and that is a realization that comes to you over a period of time all right let's end this class with a personal question did entrepreneurship take a toll on your personal life and was it worth it or is it you worth know, it uh, i'm a feminist and one of the central tenets of my life has been that um i believe and live the proposition that women can have full fledged careers just like men without giving up the joys of motherhood and without dropping the ball on all the responsibilities and all the joys uh you know um uh, that they want to have that said i know that as an entrepreneur um a lot of um support for women entrepreneurs needs to come from home as an entrepreneur you know to be the provider and to be the primary caregiver right seeking approval and validation all the time you know from parents from uh, uh the partner from the children eats into the bandwidth that you need to conserve to be able to bring the best of yourselves to your venture so you know i mean we have to have partners who sign up for the ride in terms of managing mood swings who are always giving you enough and more room to um, really conserve your energies for your business and without that it's impossible shilpa sharma of jaipur thank you for being part of et startup school thank you so much for having me thank you so that brings us to almost the end of today's class at et startup school if you'd like to be a good student check out and do the homework assignment in the show notes if you like the podcast share it with family friends even your frenemies et startup school is produced by animesh das with inputs from anupriya nair erika dzuza arijit barman shilpa sharma harish shavla govind mundra and vishal bhandari et startup school is available on economictimes.com and et play as well as amazon music apple podcasts spotify geo7 and google podcasts 